Legends of Media Research is a podcast series featuring interviews with the media industry's leading researchers, where we go behind the scenes, sharing stories from their greatest achievements and challenges. Brought to you by Media Science, the leader in media and advertising innovation research. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information about Media Science. But for now, I'm your host, Media Science CEO, Dr. Dwayne Veron. Welcome to another exciting episode of Legends of Media Research. We've got a great episode for you today. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Jan Fulgoni. Now, Jan has served as CEO and president and chair of some of the most amazing companies in our industry, you know, IRI, Comscore, you're in for quite an adventure. And Jan is the most decorated of all the legends that we're interviewing. Jan has picked up every ARF award there is, the Great Mind Award, the Lifetime Achievement Award, the Erwin Efron Demystification Award. He was inducted in the Market Research Hall of Fame. He has a number of entrepreneur awards, including the Illinois Entrepreneur of the Year, not once, but twice, <laughs> the only person to get it two times. And he's also inducted in the Chicago and Entrepreneur Hall of Fame. So quite an amazing track record and achievement. And of course, he's also served on numerous boards, including the boards of Platinum Technology when it, when it sold was the largest software acquisition in history, US Robotics, YesMail. He currently serves on the boards of PetMeds and Dynamic Signal. I mean, what an amazing track record. Chan, welcome to Legends of Media Research. Thank you. It's great to be here. Jan, let's dig right in. How did you get started in the industry? Well, I was I was born and raised in the UK, and I, my undergraduate degree is in physics, and it was it was a choice that <laughs> wasn't based upon what I really wanted to do as a career. But fortunately, talking with some friends of mine, I realized that there was this thing called a business school, and there was this thing called marketing, and I thought maybe that's some place that I should go. So I, I got my master's degree in marketing at Lancaster in the UK. And fortunately, Al Keen, who you know is the owner of uh, Management Science Associates, yeah. was looking for a couple of people to bring from the UK to the States, put them through training, then have them go back and open a London office. And they offered me the position, and you know, I came over, never went back, <laughs> if you will. But what was interesting about Management Science Associates, and we, we we had two names, depending upon who we were talking about, either Management Science Associates or Market Science Associates. Al had figured out the data was going to be key to the future of business, to the future of marketing, certainly. And so the company that he started didn't collect any data themselves, but we were able to process and analyze any kind of data the client had. And I spent 10 years there and learned pretty much everything about all of the different kinds of data that were available, you know, the positives and the negatives, how to use it, how to interpret it. And, and so that was, a, that was an incredible kind of foundation, if you will. And then I got a call from John Malik, who had just started IRI. And he said, uh, you know, would you want to come over and uh, be president? And I jumped on it. He shared some of the data that they had, which was the first scanner data, both store level data as well as household level data. And it just blew me away. 
And and so I went off there, and that was the beginning of 20 years of uh, incredible uh, success and some disappointments along the way. I think that, uh, you know, I don't think there's ever a time when it's all positive. And I, I, I'm known to have said that maybe you learn more from mistakes than you do from successes, because I think mistakes force you to look at what happened, whereas if it's if it's a success, it's easy to say, well, it's, it's my brilliance that, that caused it. So yeah, so that was that was IRI. Uh, we took it public in '83. I think we were one of the first market research companies to go public, right around the time that Microsoft and Oracle were going out. So those were heady days, if you will. The internet was coming along and. Somebody suggested to me, well, why don't you go off and do what you did at IRI, but do it online? And my first reaction was, well, there's no UPC code <laughs> here. But my business partner, Majid Abraham, and I kind of figured out how to collect all the data. So we started CompScore, and that was another very, very successful venture. That's it in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> but you make it sound so simple. <laughs> Well, we're going to dive in and explore because there's so much, I mean, particularly in your histories at, at IRI and at, at Comscore. Why don't we start with your time at IRI and, you know, what you brought to the industry was truly disruptive. And I mean that in, in a good and a bad way. You, you, you brought this scanner data into the mix and it kind of revolutionized marketing. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that journey. How, how did that happen? What was that like? You know, what did you learn along the way? Well, the, the first thing I would say is that the, the first product that IRI created was called Behavior Scan. And we had identified these markets across the country where we could pay to install scanners because this was before scanners were broadly in use. So we paid for the retailers to put the scanners in. They gave us an exclusive on the data. They also agreed to take a an ID card that the panelists that we'd recruited uh, would show. And then Jerry Eskin, brilliant mind, had come up with a black box that sat on the cable TV set of the panelists that allowed us to change the advertising. So we could send one commercial to one group of homes, a different commercial to another group of homes, and then track the impact by looking at the buying behavior. Or we could run different media plans, et cetera. And that that product was really, really successful. And we took the company public in 1983 on the basis of that. Now, what's really interesting, if you look back, is that we were running these advertising tests that ran for at least six months. Many of them ran for a year. And so back in those days, marketers were willing to wait six months to get the results of a commercial test, A versus B, or A versus B versus C, or, or a weight test, or whatever. And, uh, you know, that sounds crazy today, right? Who's going to wait that long? And then I could see as time went by that the time period that people were willing to wait got shorter and shorter and shorter. And then, you know, it really hit home when scanning was broadly in use by, by retailers. And we were able to report sales trends by week and then by day, with all of the accompanying price and promotional information. And it caused a major, major shift in how marketers were spending their marketing dollars. I think today, 
I think that somewhere around 80% of all marketing spending goes in the form of trade deals or promotions. And only 20% wow. goes to advertising. Now, you could, you know, interesting question is, well, is that good or bad? Um, and I think there's a lot of bad associated with it because, you know, to some degree, you're kind of training the consumer to buy on the basis of price, right? When you've got all these promotions running. And does that weaken the brand itself? Does brand loyalty erode? And I, I suspect that, that, yes, the answer is to some degree it did. And I think that's played out in, digital, in the digital world. And I think it's gotten even worse, if you will. So, yeah, so, so IRI was, uh, you know, a very, very successful operation from a business perspective. You know, we all, you know, made a lot of money from taking the company public. But we also learned a lot about the impact of data, how it, it could literally change an industry. And I think learned the positives and the negatives along the way. You were talking about the lessons. I mean, it because when you're telling this story, of course, this was you know this was back in the '80s. It was a long time ago, but you see the parallel yeah. today. You see the same thing happening today with this push to performance metrics, you know, on on digital, and the brand kind of gets lost in that mix. Like increasingly, you're looking to these short-term gains, and you know you start laying down these breadcrumbs and following the breadcrumbs, and it takes you farther and farther away from the kind of equity that the brand really commands. You wonder about whether we're not going through, because I think there was a correction later that came along with scanner data, where people realized, oh my gosh, like we, we overplayed this card, we went way too much to promotion, that didn't deliver the long-term value that we needed, we needed to reinvest in brand. So it feels like we're going through a little bit of a deja vu on the digital side these days. Yeah, no, there's, there's no question. I mean, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a few examples. So you know, digital generated so much data, right? And people eagerly jumped on it and started using it. But I don't think a lot of attention was paid to whether the data was reliable or whether it was really telling the story that people thought. One great example is the click on a digital ad. We did a lot of pioneering work at uh, CompScore in that regard. The click rate today on digital ads is one in a thousand, right? And I was stunned when I did a, a survey, and a, this probably goes back, you know, at least 10 years. And I did a survey of advertisers, publishers, and agencies. And I asked them, so how often do you use the click, click rate to determine the effectiveness of, of an ad campaign? And I was stunned when about a third of each of those segments said, well, almost always. And, you know, I... <laughs> I was stunned because, first of all, one of a thousand isn't a lot, right? And <laughs> you know, the work we had done at Comscore showed that whether or not the clicks were occurring, there could well be a branding impact right, of the exposure, right. right? And so the impression, even without a click, was worth a lot. But I think the the attraction of the click was it was fast, it was simple, and it didn't cost anything. And unfortunately, I think it's very easy to be kind of lured by those facts and embrace something that, you know, really is not what you thought. Another example, by the way, related to this is, you know, search advertising has exploded, right? It's huge. 
well, you know, it's kind of lower funnel marketing when all is said and done. And again, at ComSchool, we showed that if you were running branding advertising, the effectiveness of your search spending was a lot less. And so, you know, think about it, right? So if, you know, somebody does a search query and two ads come up, one is of a brand that you're aware of and that you recognize, and then the other one isn't. Well, probability is virtually 100% that they're going to click on the one that they that they recognize. And so, again, it was a lesson that clicks are not everything that you think they are. you got to be really careful about just relying on lower funnel marketing, which tends to be price-driven. And if you're not paying attention to the branding aspect of marketing, you could get into trouble pretty quickly. We did a similar study for Comcast. And what was fun about that study was the brands were fictitious brands. So Comcast had produced these very high quality ads for brands that didn't exist. And in the lab, we were able to either give people exposure to those brand ads, those fictitious brand ads or not and then measure what effect there was when people were exposed to, say, Facebook ads. And what we demonstrated was exactly the same thing. If people had had a prior exposure to the brand, you know, the brand equity ad, the, the, the impact was there. But if they didn't, the impact was negligible. Yep. <laughs> so there yep. is this critical role that branding, you know, that branding plays in this mix here. Yeah. And I think, I think that, unfortunately, what happened with digital is, first of all, it creates all this data and people kind of embrace the data without, as I said, paying enough attention to whether it's really saying anything or meaning anything. And then I think it kind of created a wave where the marketing dollars shifted from traditional channels to digital. And, you know, some of it was certainly maybe not, maybe a lot of it was warranted, but I think there was a lot of kind of, a lot of following that was going on where you know there wasn't enough question of whether whether the money was being spent appropriately and we did again a lot of work at comp score that showed the other issues the other negative issues with digital right were you delivering the ad to a human or was it going to a bot was it in view or wasn't it <laughs> that's right? still an issue and then, you know back when cookies you know back when third-party cookies were were allowed we did a lot of work looking at the accuracy of targeting against cookies and whether the descriptors attached to cookies were accurate and found that, oh, there was at least a 50% error level. And so when you put all of this together, it became clear that the the effectiveness of digital advertising was, if you weren't doing it properly, was a lot less than, you know, I think the marketers uh, expected or understood. You know, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. I want to go back to your IRI days. You had this scanner data, which again was a revolution for the industry. But then you, you alluded to this as well. You also had this other method that you had developed, which was the split cable methodology. Yep. You know, these cable systems where you, you would transmit the same signal down these two pipes, you know, going out to the market, one seeing it one way, one seeing it a different way. And so, you know, it was really first to be able to do this kind of A-B testing, you know, it introduced a whole new approach really to, to, to research. Well, the, there was actually, before Behavior Scan, there was a system called AdTel that you might remember. And at, at uh, MSA, Management Science Associates, we were doing all of the analytical work for AdTel. Now, AdTel was using 
two fixed cable systems. So they couldn't mix and match the panelists and they were running diaries. So the panelists had to fill out a diary. So that was the first AB split sales-based ad testing system. But what BehaviorScan did is it advanced it pretty dramatically because it was using scanner data to collect the buying behavior and the black box that was on the television set allowed us to mix and match the panelists whatever way we, we wanted. But as I said, it became clear that as time went by and as the national scanning systems emerged and we were the first at IRI with InfoScan to come up with a, a national system and then Nielsen shortly thereafter came out with ScanTrack. But it became clear that marketers were no longer willing to wait the length of time that it would take to run a behavior scan ad test. And it was pretty clear that those heady days were coming to an end and marketing was shifting into a whole different world using, uh, you know, using weekly and then daily scanner data. And, uh, you know, interestingly, I don't think a lot of people realize this, but the reason that scanning was installed by the retailers, and it, it was running back in the 80s, about $150,000 a store to put in a scanning system. Wow, yeah. It's a big investment. It for wasn't that the retailers were thinking about the data that these scanners were going to generate. It wasn't that. It was the fact that they were able to eliminate price marking on individual products. And there was a big cost. There was a hard cost savings there. The use of the data, you know, I think we at, at IRI were pioneers in that regard. And I, I remember some manufacturers saying to us, you know, you guys are really helping the retailers with all of this analytical work that you're doing because it's showing them the impact of price and promotion. And I remember in conversations with some of these marketers and saying, well, look, you know, if we didn't do it and we're doing it with an eye on you, the manufacturer helping you, if we didn't do it, somebody is going to do it, right? We didn't create these scanners. So this world of data availability and understanding what the data is saying, that's coming. And, you know, it's really pretty much in your interest to kind of stay ahead of the game and embrace the learnings from it, even though you might not like them. And I think that message was, you know, was understood and accepted. And we were able to build the InfoScan business to a point where I think at one of the highest point we had about 55% of the tracking market in the U.S. And then, of course, you had a little bit of an adventure in your days at IRI when the Nielsen came knocking at your door to acquire you. <laughs> and the, go yeah. the government didn't seem too happy with that idea. No. No, they weren't too happy at all. Yeah, Nielsen approached us. and Well, they were owned by Dun & Bradstreet at the time, right? So Dun & Bradstreet approached us and wanted to, to uh, buy IRI and then put it together with, with Nielsen. And I was going to be running the U.S. business. And wow, sounds like an adventure. It was very attractive, not just because of that for me personally, but, you know, the price that they were willing to pay and we were public, you know, was very, very attractive. The mistake we made was that we didn't use a banker. And because we didn't use a banker, we didn't have a Because you're smart people. With a, with a... <laughs> it's, you know, if ever I was questioning the value of a banker, that kind of brought it home to me because they would never have let us, I don't think, um, you know, go into that deal without a breakup fee. But as you, as you pointed out, you know, the, the, the government, the Justice Department objected to the deal because they thought it was going to be a concentration of too much power in that market. 
and uh, you know said if we went ahead they would block the deal and nielsen just walked away from it leaving us looking you know pretty stupid in that regard but you know we we pulled together and you know got over it and continued then building the uh, the interest game business but there was a lot of learning there i i, I, I think I, i've come to the conclusion that you learn a lot more when things go wrong than when things go right. When things go right, it's easy to say, oh, well, there you go, you know, natural brilliance. But when things go wrong, you have to, it forces you to look at it, I think, and, you know, try to get to the bottom of what went wrong and why did it go wrong, and you learn from it. That, I think that's I a great life lesson, Jen. That's a great life lesson, sure for is. sure. We, we we should all look to, uh, the, you know, to the... The mistakes that we make and 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 appreciate yep. the uh, the upside in there so you you had this great run at iri what, what happened that i mean of course you went on to co-found comscore but but how did that transition happen what what happened that led you to you know ultimately leave iri and and go and co-found comscore yeah well you know i been CEO there for, uh, I think I became CEO in 85. And so I'd been CEO for 12 or 13 years. And there comes a point where I think any company has to, you know, has to make a change. And uh, the internet came along. And maybe, you know, maybe I didn't recognize the opportunity as quickly as maybe I should have, the, the you know, what the internet represented. But, you know, but then I did. And I hooked up with another brilliant mind, Majid Abraham, who had worked with me for a decade or so at IRI. And when we started ComScore, and the idea was to do two things. One was to kind of duplicate what we were able to do at IRI in terms of measuring buying behavior. And the second was to better understand the drivers of that behavior. So we so we started it. And I think because of, of our prior success, it wasn't difficult to get financing, you know, for the business. And we were able to get two leading venture capital companies, Excel out on the West Coast, and then Flatiron in New York to fund the company. And I remember Majid said, when we went out to pitch Excel and we were flying out and we were looking at the deck that we were going to use. And I think we raised like $10 million with a 10 slide deck. I remember Majid saying, you know, if we had used a 20-slide deck, maybe we would have been able to get $20 million. But it would have been a lot more dilution, I pointed out. But what was really interesting there was, and here I just really was relying on Majid's brilliance. I mean, you know, the guy is as close to a genius as I've ever come across. I'd say he is. We didn't know how we were going to do what we was saying we were going to do, you know, how are we going to collect the data? There's no UPC code online. How are we going to recruit the panel? We knew it had to be a big panel. But, you know, I, I was relying on the fact that I knew that together, <laughs> relying on Majid a lot, that we'd come up with ways, you know, to do it. And I think that the investors, the VC investors, you know, felt the same way. So we went off. So, so we want some money. For this measurement system, we don't know how it's going to work. To do these measures, we don't know what they are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how we're going to get I them, mean, but but take out your checkbooks right now. <laughs> you know, now it was also during you know the the 
crazy days of uh, of internet financing, right? So pretty much any any idea would get financing. But I I do think that the the fact that we had the credibility was a bit a big factor. Of course. Did you have any doubts? Did you ever sit up at night and wonder, you know, whether, you know, what would happen if it didn't succeed? No, I I didn't. um, Honestly, didn't. I I tend to be an optimist, which I think you have to be if you're an entrepreneur. You have to have the belief that it can be done. And the moment you start wavering, eh, you know, things can go wrong. So, no, I mean, I look, we also... She and I really understood the market research industry. I think we understood what what clients wanted, what they would like, what they wouldn't like, and what we had to do uh, to you know to build it. But some of the technology, you know, we kind of came across as we were building it that allowed us to put it all together and do it at scale. That was the other thing. And you know, we were able to hire some brilliant computer folks who understood what they understood was that what we envisaged collecting early on was not, was not going to be the only thing we were going to want. And so they built the scale capability that allowed us to capture all of the other behaviors that we didn't at the time know were going to happen. We didn't know that video online was going to explode the way it did social media wasn't around search was in its infancy but the technology that we assembled allowed us to collect all of that all of that behavior so it was yeah we we had some really brilliant minds working on the uh, on the technology side of it what did you learn well as i was saying earlier i think this is going to sound crazy but i think we learned what doesn't work online where the data <laughs> lures you into believing something you know like click rates i mean everybody was using click rates and you know i think we i think i did that i personally kind of oversaw that work that we were doing that showed that that even if there was no click on an ad there was an impression right and if if the ad was delivered to a human there was an impression and the click was was really irrelevant to the effectiveness of the campaign now you know, the industry had to figure out, well, with clicks, we're getting paid on click rates. Well, if it's only one in a thousand, it's not getting paid a lot. And so, you know, let's charge on the basis of impressions delivered. And I think a lot of publishers, you know, content owners realized that and shifted, you know, their, their business plan to that. We found out that, you know, bots and uh, non-human activity is pervasive on the internet. And that I forget the exact number, but somewhere around a third of all these ads were being delivered to bots, but the advertiser was paying for it. Ads would in view, even though they were delivered to a human, you know, if the ad was loaded onto the browser, but it was below the fold, below the screen, and the, you know, the consumer didn't see it, or the consumer clicked off to another page, the advertiser was paying for it. And, you know, and then how accurate are these cookies? And the problem with the, well, today, (laughs) you know, third-party cookies have been obliterated. And what we realized is the cookie was a browser identifier. And if you have multiple people on the computer, you really don't know who, well, we did because we had the, the, 
you know, the data, we were tracking individuals. The panel, yeah. Right? Yeah, with the panel. And yeah, yeah. Majid there came up with another brilliant idea, which was he looked at the way that people were typing. And it turned out it's an identifier that you can use to identify, you know, Jack from Sally in a household. So we knew the behavior of individuals. And we were able to show that that the cookie, which is like the computer, it's an identifier for the computer. It doesn't always tell you accurately who was on the machine at any point in time. So, so there was a lot of learning of what didn't work and then what did work that we were able to build products around. And, you know, that's what we were selling. And I think that's another, another lesson that, that I learned. And, and it's relevant today. I, I do a lot of board work. I'm not running any, any company these days, but I do a lot of board work. And one of the things, uh, you know, I say to companies that are in the business of collecting data, you know, you got to go further than just collecting the data. You have to really focus on the applications of the data and figure out, you know, what does it mean and what's the learning for a client? And if you don't, you are really undervaluing the service. And, you know, I think that that both Majid and I had that kind of curiosity about the implications of the data, and we love to build applications. And it kind of served us well o- over the years. You had another adventure along the way with the with the arrival of the need for cross-platform research. And of yep. course you had that, that great project that you did, you know, with already, you know, uh, project yep. blueprint. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that adventure. What was the adventure of crossing into cross-platform research? What was that like for you? Well, you know, it really started with mobile, right? It, that's when the platform started to emerge. It wasn't, it was no longer just the laptop, right? And then, you know, mobile was amazing in terms of how quickly it built. And that opened up a whole set of new doors for us to offer services, right, that generated revenue. But then as digital impacted television viewing in a whole bunch of ways, and as video, you know, grew, it didn't matter whether you were watching a video on a laptop or a mobile device or on a TV, the need for cross-platform information emerged. And we did some, I think, again, I think some pioneering work and, you know, ESPN and Audi were strong supporters of it. And what we were trying to get at fundamentally is what's the true unduplicated count of people watching an ad or watching a piece of content, right? And what's the true frequency that's being delivered? And it was it was pretty clear that without it, uh, you just you just didn't have the right data. And I remember, I remember Ted McConnell, who was might know Ted, but was running the digital analytics business at Proctor, and saying, you know, this might sound old fashioned, but Proctor really likes to know how many people did we reach with a message and how often. That's so yeah, old fashioned. We should frequency. We should frequency, and I think, you know, it's still big issue today and you know and it was interesting because I, I realized when you're dealing with people who just kind of grew up in a digital world whose careers were based on digital maybe didn't have the foundation of understanding television advertising didn't understand the need for grp didn't understand reach and frequency issues it was like all impression let's count the number of impressions that's what an advertiser should want 
Well, no. If you're delivering all, de delivering all those impressions, just a handful of people, that's very different than if you're reaching 100 million people. So, yeah, so we did some pioneering work in, in that regard. And, you know, it, it wasn't too difficult to show that, that a cross-platform advertising campaign was more effective than just a, than a single platform campaign. You were able to, if you had the right numbers, you were able to build out your unduplicated reach, deliver the right frequency, and off you go. Now, that said, I point out a, another piece of learning, which is that the frequency that's, that's delivered in digital is way, way higher than anybody really realizes. And we measured this at ComScore. And the the term frequency capping, right, that you know, I think a lot of people are familiar with. The, the problem is if frequency capping is just being done site by site without being applied across people, right, in an unduplicated sense, you could have you could be capping it well on site A, site B, C, and so on. But if you've got a lot of people visiting all those sites that are the same people, your frequency cap is almost irrelevant. And so, and I don't think that problem has been solved yet. Maybe with the cross-platform systems that are being developed now, they, it will be. But I do think that's a major issue. Because I think there's way oversaturation that's occurring in terms of the number of times that ads are being delivered. Look, you and you see it on, on television today, right? I would ask anybody that's sitting there on a Sunday afternoon watching an NFL football game, how often do you see the same ad? And it comes on over and over and over again. And I'm not sure it was meant to be that way. I mean, you're reaching basically the same people and delivering way higher frequency than is needed. So maybe the new systems that are, you know, that are now being developed will address that issue. Why do you think it's been such a challenge for the industry? I mean, we've been we've been working on this problem for over a decade now. Oh. Why, why why is it such a struggle? It's not easy. It's really not easy. I mean, when you think about it, think how fragmented the you know world is today for a, you know for advertisers. I mean, you've got these platforms, then you've got so many alternatives within each platform, right? You've got so many different ways a consumer can can see an ad. And to capture all of that requires technology that goes way beyond what historically has worked. I mean, back in the days when it was three networks, right? I mean, it, it sounds crazy to say that today when you think of all of the different ways that an ad can be delivered. So it's it's not but I do think I do think a lot of progress has been made, maybe slower than a lot of people would like. But it's fascinating to see how it's now evolving. I'm kind of glad I'm not in the middle of it because it looks like, it's, <laughs> it looks like there's a lot of competition and it's not easy you know, to put the systems together. But it is kind of fascinating to watch it from, yeah. from afar. <laughs> now, another strand throughout your career, which has really been interesting because, that, because the, the technologies that you've brought to the market have really played a critical role in the in the evolution of this is the whole you know market mix modeling arena. Um, maybe you could talk about what you've seen across your career and the evolution uh, of that particular uh, arena. Yeah, so from my perspective, at least, market mix modeling really evolved when scanning data became available, and I remember that 
uh, an IRI Jerry Eskin and develop some of the early market mix models back when we, we just had the behavior scan database, but they became stronger when scanner data was, was available broadly. And, and I remember I'll mention that Ed Ditters, who worked for us at, at IRI, went off and started MMA to basically commercialize market mix modeling. And he did, he did a really nice job of it. And one of the ways that these models, so basically what, what these models were back then is you had the weekly scanner data, you had the price, you had it for all of the brands in a, in a category, you knew what the promotion activity was, you knew when coupons were dropped, you know, the displays that were running in the store, you knew the feature ads that were running and you got the TV data and you could plug that into the model. And so you really could figure out what was driving sales. And I think what Ed did at MMA is that he used, for a number of clients, he used their behavior scan tests to validate his models. Very interesting. Which was, which was really pretty smart. And so those models emerged and they became standard. And I think that, you know, certainly most of the more sophisticated CPG advertisers were making their annual decisions for their budget and, you know, their, their spending based on what the models said. But it was a, kind of a look back. It was always looking back at, back at historical data. It took a long time to build them. So the timing was an issue, but I, they work on any question. Now, if you then fast forward to digital, I was blown away by these attribution models that came along, which to me, coming from a kind of a holistic measurement of marketing impact, seemed to be missing a whole bunch of data. I mean, for example, last click was one attribution model in these early days. So last click was given a huge weighting, right? Well, you know, that kind of played right in the hands of search marketing. And, you know, then click rates were used in these models. Now, from what I understand today, there's been a resurgence of marketing mix models in a digital world. And I think hopefully it's because, because people have realized that th these simple attribution models just don't capture anywhere near all of the variables that are impacting consumer behavior. And so maybe it's, you know, maybe what's, goes around comes around and you know we'll enter another another era of market mix modeling which i i think personally i think is sorely needed and maybe the data is going to be available to run these you know to run these models in, in across because you're gonna to have to run them in a cross-platform sense to really point. get the drive yeah good point yeah. good point what do you see in the future so with the deprecation of the cookie you know, um, we're now moving forward. What what do you think is in store for us? Yeah, that's a really good question. I wish I had the answer. I think, you know, maybe the way we were doing it at, uh, at ComScore is is um, is one example of how it can be done. Personally, I don't think you can eliminate the need for a panel. You know, for all of the big data, the set-top box data that's out there, you still need person-level data and I think a panel is the way to do it where you've got explicit permission to you know to monitor monitor people's behavior so I think that's true if you want to run a campaign across multiple platforms and 
different content providers. But if as an advertiser, you're really focused on one segment, it's a lot easier. And I saw yesterday that Samsung is offering a kind of a rating service within the population of people that own Samsung TVs. Well, they have a pretty sizable market share. So I could see that being appealing to advertisers. So what what might well happen is that on the one hand, you'll have a, a complete database, a holistic database that's measuring everything. But I could see uh, at, the t- at the same time that that's happening, kind of segment specific. I, I, I don't want to say a, a walled garden because that's another, that's a whole different topic. But a kind of small walled garden, if you will, where the advertiser knows that they're only reaching people within that garden. And then there you've got a lot of data that you can use very effectively. So so I, I think that's the way the world, at least from my perspective, you know, will emerge. You've got the need for holistic databases or measuring everything in an unduplicated manner, but then you're going to have different walled gardens, some big ones, you know, Amazon could be a walled garden, Apple could be a walled garden, Google could be Facebook, because they have massive, you know, user bases. And, you know, I could see it being very appealing to run campaigns separately within within those individual gardens. So that's that's what I think today the future will hold. Could be dead wrong. <laughs> and what about the future for Jan? Ah, uh, golf is in my future. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, um, I, I don't miss, I don't, I have to say, I don't miss running a business. I think, you know, I did it for 50 years and, you know, that's more than enough time. Um, but I still really like being in the game, but in a different way, if you will. And so I'm on a half a dozen boards, public and private. And, uh, and I really enjoy that. And, um, it's you know it's it's very nice to be able to provide thoughts and opinions and uh, suggestions, but not being the one that has to execute it. That's kind of uh, that's that's appealing. So Jan, we always close our interviews with the same question, which is, what advice would you give to researchers coming into the industry in this day and age? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there are a number of things, you know, you know, first of all, I I would say really understand what your competitive advantage is, right? And like, don't go off into an area where, you know, you don't have the advantage. Now, you know, you know, if you're really strong technically, but you don't have communication abilities, you know, there are a lot of really good technical jobs out there. But I think one has to be honest with oneself and, you know, go, you know, go where where one can perform to, to one's utmost uh, uh, capabilities. So, so that's the that's the first thing I would say. Then I would say, think about whether you want to work for a small growing company or whether you want to go off and work for a large conglomerate. I think those decisions are, um, I think, very, very important, especially at an early point in one's career. What do you see as the the different advantages and disadvantages in those scenarios? Well, I think that you can become a big fish in a small pond pretty quickly at a, you know, at a smaller company. I think it's really difficult to do that. 
you know, it's going to take decades to do that at a larger company. But it depends on what you know what you want, right? I mean, if if it doesn't bother you to be having a deal with bureaucracy and a large company and all of the things that go along with it, you know, great, then you know, go for that. But you make it sound so attractive. <laughs> but, well, I mean, I've never, I've never worked, I've never gone to work for a for a big company. I guess the big companies I work for are the ones I kind of built along the way. <laughs> but you know, if you like flexibility, like doing new things, and you know, you like the entrepreneurial side of of life, then I think you know a smaller company is where you ought to be. And you know, maybe I'm biased here because that's the way I've kind of started in the three. Uh, three companies I've worked for for over the years. But, you know, fundamentally, I think there's there's just a lot of opportunity. There's so much data, so much that can be done with it all today. I would be very wary about chat GPT because Lord knows what that's going to do. I mean, you know, it's pretty amazing what, what it could do. But I, I do think, by the way, that there's going to be still a need for humans to review what comes out of these AI systems before you go off and publish it broadly. Because there's enough examples uh, of where it comes up with something that, you know, maybe is pulling data off the internet that isn't correct or whatever. But there's going to be a lot of opportunities. And I think flexibility is probably another another thing you, you're going to need to have as a capability because things are changing so quickly. Well, Jen, what a career. You know, I think the real hallmark of your experience in this industry is just all the innovation that you brought, you know, the fearlessness with which you kind of like tackle new arenas. I mean, it's just so remarkable, really, when you look back at it all historically. So, you know, congratulations. What what a what a massive uh, contribution you've made. Thank you. Very nice of you to say that. I couldn't have done it without a whole bunch of talented people, though. I have to I have to say that. And I've been fortunate along the way to have worked with some of the most brilliant minds that one can imagine. And I certainly could not have done whatever I've done, could not have done it alone. Oh, fantastic. Well, Jen, thanks again. And I want to thank you, the audience, for joining us today. Don't miss our next exciting episode and stick around if you'd like to hear a little bit more about media science. Thanks again for joining us on Legends of Media Research. Almost every major innovation in the TV advertising industry over the course of the past decade was first tested by media science researchers. Whether you're talking about video ads on mobile phones or limited interruption ad pods or program context effects or brand integrations or pause ads or picture-in-picture -picture ads or six-second ads or interactive ad formats. <laughs> I mean, the list goes on and on. All were first tested by Media Science. Media Science is the leader in media innovation research. So when you're looking for media or advertising innovation research, collaborate with Media Science. Learn more at mediascience.com.